up, nerds? This is In My Expert Opinion, a podcast about the nonfiction side of speculative fiction. Your hosts are Dr. Marcus Cole. I get paid to do science. Sarah Ward. I'm a scientist in progress. And me, Abby Cole. I'm not a scientist at all. Join us as we geek out about the made-up stuff we love and the real stuff that shaped it. Today we're going to be talking about the X-Men again. We're going to be talking primarily about Mystique and Rogue, and we're going to be wrapping up the metaphor uh, for the LGBTQ community. Yeah. So I was just going to say from the top, uh, Mystique being a shape changer, there's a lot of like trans narrative discussion, and that honestly means there's going to be like transphobia discussion. So like Mm -hmm. just kind of a blanket warning. Writers do not handle this particularly well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So what I first want to talk about is I'm pulling mostly from a chapter of, of Gender and the Superhero Narrative written and published in 2018 called Faces of Objectivity, the Uncanny Mystique and Transsexuality written by Dorian L. Alexander. So they then pronounce. That's a very good title. It's very good. Very interesting. They are a grad student and a pre-doctoral instructor at the University of Washington in the Department of English. And so they've written this work on uh, looking at Mystique and specifically looking at, you know, how she's betrayed mostly in the comics, but also in the films and how this can be linked to this idea of a gothic monstrosity. Oh, yes. Excellent. Um, and how this kind of plays a role in uh, like the trans coding narratives associated with her. Dope. I, I don't love the idea of uh, the monstrosity thing yeah. being sort of related to the trans thing, but I do love a good gothic monstrosity. I'll tell you that much. I will say it's mostly a criticism of the the portrayal of Mystique. Got it. And like how she's handled. I'm just really hmm. excited by like Marvel comic lore, like working its way into academic spaces and really getting some like interesting criticism. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting article. This is what happens if you study the humanities and not science, guys. <laughs> you get to talk about whatever the fuck you want. You're like, this is my <laughs> dissertation. It's about Mystique. Everybody back off. Hey, you know what? I opened my <laughs> dissertation with a bunch of pictures of electric-powered black superheroes. And I was like, this is the inspiration That's for true. my thesis. <laughs> yep. Oh, amazing. I love that. I don't think uh, it was It was probably a little frowned upon by the traditionalists. I, I saw some, uh, I saw a few faces, but fuck them. <laughs> yeah, fuck them. <laughs> anyway, so Mystique. Mystique, also known yes. as Raven Darkholm. Pretty edgy name, to be honest. Raven yeah. Darkholm? Yeah, yeah. Raven Wow. Mystique is uh, a shape changer. Yes. Her like base form is blue. She has red hair and glowing yellow eyes. Um, but she predominantly exists in a um the form of like a white woman, particularly in the film series. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, throughout the series she constantly changes her appearance. She's also bi. Um her longest relationship was actually with a character named Destiny. Is that a woman? Yes, a woman named Destiny. So their relationship wasn't really made explicitly uh, or rather made explicit until kind of a couple years later. This is with Chris Claremont, the the writer that started back in 1975 and throughout the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mystique and uh, her partner Destiny adopt Rogue. That's like Rogue's introduction to the comics. Destiny eventually dies, and this is like a huge transformative moment for uh, Mystique. But honestly, kind of afterwards, oh. uh, Destiny's relationship is in many ways downplayed in a lot of uh, in a lot of the comic series and in the films ex- uh, explicitly. She is like only shown with men. Oh, it, oh, Mystique is? 
Yeah. Is it a fridging kind of thing or is it is she fleshed out enough that it doesn't really feel that way? I'm not super sure. I also think your kind of mileage may vary there. Sure. Kind of one thing that comes up with that is uh, there's a lot of kind of comparisons of those two to Cyclops and Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wait, Cyclops is the guy with Scott the visor. Summers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Phoenix is Jean Grey. She's a um telepath. Great. Yeah. Oh, she's the one who outed Iceman. Yes. yes. Good job. Yeah. So um. Awkward. But in 1989, Destiny died, and this has been like a huge focus for Mystique's characterization of the relationship is in some ways kind of downplayed later on, and in the films, generally ignored. Mm-hmm. So the writer of this, Dorian L. Alexander, they kind of talk about Mystique as a gothic monstrosity using a lot of you know, pulling mostly from the comics and talking about a gothic monstrosity as, um, you know, one that lacks a stable integrity. When you're looking at a gothic monstrosity, it's uh, the criminality is physically manifested via the body. So the the degradation of the self is uh, realized through the grotesque body. And Mystique is very often portrayed as a criminal, especially in the films. The writer of this article points out that this is like really, you know, paralleling the transphobic association of being trans with deceiving people. You know what I mean? Like you look at like popular media where you have like Buffalo Bill, this like, you know, trans people are criminals kind of thing. Wait, who is this? Buffalo Bill is the Silence of the Lambs character. It's like the dude who like kills women to make a skin for himself. Ew. It's it's like a transcoded narrative. Oh, really? Well, because he, like, is trying to assume the skin of these, like, slain women. It's all very, very fucked up. That's bad. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I I mean, I have studiously avoided the Silence of the Lambs because it is <laughs> not something I can handle. Sure. I did not know that it was uh coded in that way. That's upsetting. It's not great. The writer of this article also points out that uh, the gothic monstrosity is typically associated with animalistic characteristics, a way of producing the, the uncanny... Mystique, in particular in the film series, is shown with way more scales and reptilian eyes instead of glowing yellow eyes. This, like, heavily leaning on her, like, non-human nature kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was... So, in undergrad, my honors thesis was about the grotesque in, like, literature written in exile. And one of the ideas behind that is that, like, the grotesque is something that results from the experience of, like, a marginalized or alienated existence, Mm -hmm. right? So that, like, being pushed to the side or having to be detached from, like, I don't know, a home in the case of exile is something that results in, like, sort of the need to express oneself in these sort of grotesque ways, which I I guess is probably not what this person was getting at in terms of it being, like, monstrous per se, Mm -hmm. but this, uh, it just reminds me of that. Yeah, I mean, this author points out that, uh, so what they say is, it is easy to be dismayed that such an impressive example of transness should be marred by the regressive attitudes and fears endemic to the Gothic tradition. Um, But it is still possible to recognize Mystique as a source of inspiration for trans people. You know, it's not really what's happening here that it's a a way of expressing the marginalization. It's kind of a consequence, the coding, you know what I mean? But it can still be a source of inspiration and hopefully kind of like a way of looking to the future of like uh, more positive portrayals. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think you, you could pretty easily see this like with Mystique in the comics as well, this idea of her being a transgressive character in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I don't really think a lot of it's handled super well. In her solo series, first initially written by Brian K. Vaughn, uh, there's a recurring theme of distrust and obsession with keeping track of her. 
So, you know, this, like, related societal obsession with, like, looking at non-conforming bodies and being able to identify them. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeping track of people who are trans or non-conforming in whatever way. And so what this largely focuses on is uh, Mystique searching for a device that would allow people to find or detect people like her. Like her being any mutants or, like, shapeshifters Shapeshifter specifically? specifically, I believe. Got it. And so, like, one uh, quote from it is someone saying, um, like, hunting down shapeshifters like you kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, in comics, you have, like, italics to represent you know the emphasis yeah dorian alexander kind of notes that this dehumanizing emphasis on the you reduces mystique to her uh, her unique form and the shifting sense of form you know affirms this hatred for people who do not conform as they are expected to yeah mm-hmm. in mystique 13 uh she chases a woman in brazil to uh, take a stolen artifact through some not great ways of phrasing this woman is revealed to be a trans woman Uh, Mystique then uses the artifact to turn a nearby lead pipe into gold and gives it to her so she can leave. Oh. There's a third character who then comes in and uses a bunch of problematic phrasing, uh, but it nevertheless establishes that Mystique sees herself in this woman, who is stereotypically portrayed as trans. The final volume is pretty bad. (laughs) Okay. There's a final fight that like stigmatizes trans women. There's like a dude in a dress kind of thing who is explicitly shown to be mentally ill. The stigmatization of uh, body dysmorphia and conflating it with trapped in body consciousness. Like, it's just like pretty bad all the way down. Uh Yeah. So I don't want to say that the solo series really handled this very well, but it does like explicitly (laughs) link Mystique to like trans narratives. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In the movies, this doesn't really happen to the quite the same extent, but, you know, the idea of, like, Mystique is a shapeshifter, her form is fluid, the way she's described mimics a lot of trans narratives uh, and experiences. It just seems like that the the writing and, I guess, the drawing is so intentional, but it's like, why are you having these people try to tell this story or articulate the, like, it's... I Yeah, I yeah. personally don't love it i mean i think mystique is really really interesting yeah it would be nice if she was written by someone who is trans so it's not handled in this way that it's just like oh my god like what are you doing half the time you know what i mean yeah again we have this opportunity in comic book world to just create new universes (laughs) and just like find new writers and find new artists to like really tell genuine stories with unique characters and then it's just like oh let's just grab another white guy to write this we got it yeah and instead what you end up having is like this very clumsy execution that ends up being like really you know transphobic in a lot of ways and is uh in the case of the films even more recent that should have kind of had their shit together hypothetically that are also like showing her as more animalistic in the film she particularly uses like the threat of homoeroticism against her enemies like turning into like a dude and flirting with a dude and he's like visibly yeah. uncomfortable kind of thing. Like these like very like homophobic and transphobic attitudes is like a recurring uh, issue in these films, especially in the original trilogy of them. This is, this is going back a little bit about like writers and stuff, but I do think that what you're talking about in terms of like there not being these writers involved, I think it's mostly with the like mainstream blockbustery type of stuff. Like I feel like Graphic novels in particular have become a really common way for queer writers to, I don't know, like a really common platform for queer writers, I guess. Like you have yeah. like Alison Bechtel and uh, I think her name's Mariko Tamaki uh, and like Tilly Walden and all this. It's become like a whole thing unto itself, which is a little more niche and a little more indie, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it has become a space where I think LGBT writers have found, I don't know. Like a home for themselves. Yeah, and a way to like tell these stories. Yeah, but like having it absent from like, you know, blockbusters <laughs> is obviously uh, an issue unto itself. Yeah. 
But I mean, I guess yeah. that'd be like the ultimate goal is like to like take like this very like strong and good groups of work and put them on like, I guess, like a bigger scale so that everybody right. can like engage and hear these stories and like learn and not yeah. see just like stereotypes written out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the writer of this article kind of concludes that she cannot be read as trans, but she does kind of actively project the the power of like being trans in terms of its ability to disrupt and dismantle like gender norms, which is obviously like great, yeah. but also, I mean, the execution leaves a lot to be desired, but it doesn't like want to, you know, the article doesn't want to like discount how people can relate to her and how they see themselves in her and stuff like that. And there is like some power to that, but at the same time, it's like, well, don't we deserve better? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I don't remember a lot about Mystique from the movies. Uh, I haven't read any comics, so I'm just going on movies here, but I do remember this sort of like, fuck you, devil may care attitude is kind of rad. I think Mystique is like super cool. Yeah. Shape changing is the power that I would want. By the way, if I could have a superpower, it is 100% mm-hmm. shape yeah. changing. She's a really dope character. Also, like in the X Men Evolution, like animated series, just one of the better characters from that cartoon. Yeah. Very fucking cool. But I think kind of a continuation of like sloppy handling, uh, a related note, at least in terms of trans narratives and coding in particular, in Uncanny X Men 17, uh, this is more recent. This one is about Ran, I believe is the name. Ran? She's a mutant. She is hit on by a Mm. group of men. And when they keep pushing her, she starts to turn into her wolf form. The men Uh. are disgusted, accuse her of trying to trap, quote, normal guys. Okay, buddy. And then they murder her after she apologizes. It's explicitly (sighs) like a trans panic murder. You know what I mean? Like revelation of like different like body kind of thing. And then murdering her while she's like saying words like trapping people and like, I I mean, it's like very bad, right? The writer, by the way, did apologize for this. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, I guess that's something. But this is immediately followed by Wolverine finding her murderers and telling them to say her name when he confronts them. So you have this like wild conflation. Okay. A wild conflation of like transcoded narratives and like the response of murders of black people by police. And so it's like this like mixing and matching of these terms makes this death so performative, so unnecessary on so many levels. Just a complete wild misunderstanding of how both both of these things operate. And the fact of the matter is that this character is not black and is like a cis woman. You know what I mean? Like this is like wildly out of line. This is what happens when people who have zero context try to tell these stories and create these narratives. And it's like, I think we're like, we feel like we're doing the right thing. We, We said the right phrase, right? I mean, the thing is that like, I think it is fully within writers like, rights and abilities to be able to write characters who don't match their own lived experience right because otherwise like how the fuck is anyone gonna write anything besides like i mean i'm gonna write a book and it's gonna be all bisexual white women and it's gonna be great (laughs) and nobody else is gonna be there but like it requires a level of like responsibility and like meticulousness and paying attention to the world around you and like taking it upon yourself to do it right and hiring diversity consultants and stuff like that so you don't wind up with this random like scattershot woke bullshit yeah i mean you know yes foof indeed yeah so um i'll come back to mystique in a second uh for this last article but for the next thing i kind of wanted to just talk about rogue for a little bit cool Mm -hmm. she's she's the one who 
has um two colors of hair. Yeah, she has like white streaks in her hair. <laughs> With skin to skin contact, she absorbs the very identity of those she touches, their powers, their memories, and their personalities. That's fucking rough, buddy. Yeah. It's not great. It's a really, really hard power to have, which is obviously explored a lot. She was introduced originally as a villain in Avengers Annual Number no. 10 in 1981, adopted by Mystique and Destiny. Very early on, she absorbs the powers of Miss Marvel and has this, like, really damaged effect because of it. Um, she absorbs, like, too much. The longer the skin contact is, the more she absorbs. And she's, like, suffering from this, like, debilitating psychological distress because she's, like, feeling Marvel's thoughts and emotions and thinking they're her own and they're realizing they're not. And, like, having this, like, really a huge oh, amount of distress with it kind of thing. Holy crap. Wait, does she keep the powers or do they go away? I don't know because Rogue is, like, in the, specifically the X-Men cartoon, like, she is able to fly and has super strength. And, like, I don't know, I can't remember exactly how they um, rationalize her, ab those abilities with her also having this ability to absorb things. So she might have like residual power, like after the whole interaction. Yeah. To bring it back to D&D, &D, maybe it's like teleportation circle, where if you cast it every day for a oh, month, you get to then it, it just stays. Huh. <laughs> it's every day for a month, right? Am I right? A year. A year? Fuck. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. So in this uh, this article about uh, Rogue and about, you know, like a queer feminist imagination kind of thing, uh, it talks about, um, you know, kind of the definition of being queer as something that is unable to be properly identified. You know, like the idea of trying to identify it as in itself normalizing and not the point. Uh, but like Judith mm -hmm. Butler, for example, defines it as like something that is continually made and unmade. And so you have Rogue, who's this character who's like very being is constantly made and unmade as she absorbs like these different people into herself. Um, it has to struggle with that, you know, the consequence of having like different thoughts and memories and powers constantly being part of her and being taken away from her and, you know, being modified and stuff like that. See, this sounds like my least favorite power. Yes, this sounds pretty terrifying to me, yeah. to be quite honest. I don't, I think, like, honestly, there are a lot of different kinds of X-Men and a lot of, like, powers out there, but this would probably be the, like, least convenient one. I actually super don't want telepathy either. I mean, yeah. but you could at least kind of control telepathy once you like practice, but there's not real, like, I, I don't oh, think I've seen- I mean, she I've can't seen, touch people. Yeah, like, I don't think I've, she's ever gotten oh. control over her powers enough to be a, like, I can now touch you. I think maybe in like a, like an apocalyptic timeline where like, she's like highest mutant level ever. Like she can touch things without absorbing power. But like, when we normally see Rogue in comics, cartoons, movies, like she is unable to actually physically touch anyone without absorbing their essence. Yeah, I mean, a constant thing with her is that she's a mutant who is doesn't want to be one. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like- Oh, yeah, and shamed. Yeah, the cure to her mutancy is like allowing her to be a person that she wants to be kind of thing. And so it's this like personal struggle versus, you know, a more political look at the cure kind of thing and how that, uh, how like a cure to mutancy can affect- you know, society at large and like the different attitudes towards mutants kind of thing. Like Rogue is largely just concerned with being able to be herself. Mm. And so it's like a personal yeah. struggle versus a political one that is like very largely separated out from like a lot of the other X-Men who are approaching it from like, Mystique won't die if she touches someone. You know what I mean? Like Professor yeah. X won't die if he touches someone. He isn't at risk of losing himself. And uh, killing the other person. I mean, Rogue, if she has extended contact with the other person, they die as she fully absorbs them mm -hmm. and their, like, powers and stuff like that. So it's like, 
you know, a truly like kind of traumatic position to be in, right? Yeah. Did you come across anything that like talked about rogues and uh, Nightcrawler's relationship? What? Not not like 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 a romantic one. I didn't look one, into it specifically. No. Just oh. because like in the um, I think it was the first trilogy when they kind of come up with like the mutant cure, and it's like there's clearly like a rift there between mutants that are like for the cure and mutants that aren't for the cure, and like I'm actually gonna talk about the last stand next, but mostly ah, about Mystique never mind. And not Rogue. There we go. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like. <laughs> She, like, there's clearly, like, mutants that, like, their powers interfere with them having, like, the lives that they want to live. And also, like, mutants who can't hide that they're mutants. Mm -hmm. Doesn't Nightcrawler have that whole, like, I'm mega Catholic, God is punishing me thing going on? He's like, yeah, he's like uber Catholic. And, like, he, and I I think this movie, he was like, I want to, like, get the treatment. Mm -hmm. Because, like, he almost, like, like, because he's, like, a Catholic, but he looks like a conversion therapy. And he kind of, and he looks, I, I don't know if he's always, like, supposed to look, like, devil-ish with, like, the pointy ears and the tails, but it's, like, him being, like, a Catholic and looking like that, I'm sure, is just, like, yeah, just a whole lot yeah. to deal with. The last thing I wanted to say about Rogue before jumping into that movie specifically and the idea of mutants and how they approach their mutancy and a cure to their mutancy, mm-hmm. um, in Uncanny X-Men 185, I just thought this was nice. There is a conversation between Rogue and Storm where Rogue is talking about how hard it is and her like fears and yeah. struggling with all this and like Storm like takes off her glove in a way that mimics when Rogue first takes off her glove to take Captain America's powers back when she's first introduced as a villain. And so Storm takes off her glove and hands her hand over and says, like, today I give myself freely without reservation kind of thing. So it's like a a way of, like, trying to, like, re-empower her, like, mutancy and make it something that she can control and connect with other people for and stuff like that. And Storm says stuff like, would you like to see the world through my eyes and, like, kind of trying to, like, connect with her in a way that isn't, like, you know, her power is, like, this expressly negative thing. Mm Mm-hmm. I just got fucking chills. That's awesome. That's so lovely. It's really cool. It's a very good like panel because it like shows them standing facing each other and it's like a profile view as like Storm takes off her glove and like holds her hand out to Rogue while mm-hmm. saying this. That's really beautiful. I feel like in in maybe I'm not remember this like incorrectly either in the comics or movies or cartoons, but I feel like at some point ro- like Rogue people are more accepting of Rogue's ability and like and, I guess see it as like an asset and i don't know if that's like a good or like a bad thing but they'll like give her them some of her power so that she can help fight and it's not this like rejection of like avoiding her like oh no she's dangerous like oh like if we understand and try to connect with this person it can actually help us solve these problems yeah i mean much in the same way rogue gets storm's powers in this scene and then like enjoys herself like she has like fun with these Mm -hmm. powers versus like feeling like guilty about using them or being confused about it and stuff like that so I don't know if this was kind of like a an initial, you know, like jumping off point for that kind of wave, uh, you know, interpreting Rogue and how she like interacts with other characters. Yeah, I feel like guilt is a, like a big part of her character too, because like every time she touches someone, like accidentally, it just like you get their memories, and like I feel like in the cartoons, the first memory is normally of like what they see when she touches them and like being scared, and it's like oh. Yeah, I I like I feel like sometimes kids just need to be told that it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much of a kid she is at this point, I guess. I am really realizing as we talk about this that there is one X-Men movie that really burrowed into my brain and I don't remember anything else. <laughs> <laughs> she was a kid in that one. Well, now we're going to talk about the 2006 X-Men movie, The Last Stand. Oh, yeah. And I'm pulling from an article called Professor Xavier is a Gay Traitor, an Anti-Simulationist Framework for Interpreting what? Ideology, Power, and Statecraft. So what? I just wanted to say the title of that one. Hold on, can you repeat that, please? (laughs) Uh, Professor Xavier is a gay traitor, an anti-assimilationist framework for interpreting ideology, power, and statecraft. 
Okay. That's a bold title. That's a big, juicy title. Basically, this is about the idea of, you know, being queer and being an assimilationist or a rejectionist, or particularly in reference to, like, the state. What does that mean? Like, fitting in versus being like, fuck y'all? Yeah. Got it. You know, conforming or rejecting it and saying that I don't have to conform. Got it. Which is an oversimplification, and I feel like that kind of phrasing also lends itself to being an anti-assimilationist viewpoint. But honestly, that is kind of a huge interpretation for X-Men. There was this, like, tweet I saw several years ago where someone was like, it's like, I'm not gay as in something, but queer as in Magneto was right kind of thing. Like this, like... What? uh, It's like the framework (laughs) of, yeah, we should be rejectionist. I'm not... I'm queer because it's like a radical position to take and I reject the, you know, the state and the the society that expects me to conform in a certain way. That is a very rad attitude, but I would also like to take a detour to remind people that queer is still a slur in some parts of the country and world. So if somebody doesn't want to do it, don't make them. That's what I have to say about that word. Yes, that is my <laughs> That's my detour. There we go. Yeah. So basically just kind of jumping into it, I'm going to talk a lot about Mystique for a while here um, because she's kind of like a focal point for a lot of this, I feel like. Mm-hmm. You know, Mystique passes, right? She generally adopts this like manifestation of standard beauty. So like white with like blonde hair um, instead of taking on her natural form. You know, this article kind of touches on, you know, the idea of attracting like society's gaze. It is better for her or she rather feels it is better for her to go about life while covered in this way so that she doesn't attract an unwanted gaze upon her. Yeah. Which it can also, I mean, if you're looking at the like trans panic thing could also be like a full on safety issue, right? I would say for most people, it's largely a safety issue. Like the gaze just being an unwanted, objectifying and dehumanizing thing. Yeah. So really early in the movie, Xavier's flirting with a woman. This is, by the way, when they're like younger, this is like not Sir Ian McKellen's or Patrick Stewart versions. This is- okay. Uh, you know, when they're like 20s, 30s kind of thing. <laughs> For some reason, I was thinking when you're like, this is when they're younger. It's not Sir Patrick Stewart. And I was like, he was young once. And then I realized <laughs> he was, was fully a young man. Yeah. So early in the movie, Xavier's flirting with a woman and he tells her that her uh, her two different colored eyes are a sexy mutation. Wow. And this woman says, let's reclaim the word mutant and proud. <laughs> Mystique Wait. shows up, ruins the flirtation and basically tells uh, Xavier is it only for the pretty mutations or the invisible ones like yours? But if you're a freak, you better hide. Ha! Damn. Fuck so you. So basically just pointing out the discrepancy in like mutants with like invisible and like closeted powers versus like mm-hmm. these open and out unhideable powers kind of thing. I just can't believe she's a fucking villain. This drives me crazy. I In the movie that burrowed into my brain, I remember thinking she was like awesome and great. And I don't remember her being a bad guy. And now she's like yelling at Sir Patrick Stewart. I mean- Professor Xavier. <laughs> she's right, though. Yeah. I know. That's what I'm saying. No, that was my point. She's fully right. This yeah. is rad. What she's saying and doing is incredible. I don't... I just am... It's one of those things where I'm having a hard time settling, categorizing her as bad guy is my point. See, this is my inherent issue with, like, categorizing, uh, like, with some of this metaphor stuff because mm-hmm. it inherently is, like, this is the bad position to take. Xavier's position of conforming and like aligning with the government is the good one and i don't 
believe like I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because anything is more nuanced than that, yep. right? Exactly. You can't just kind of distill it down to that. I, I love that. Rolling up like <laughs> what about us freaks? Oh yeah. Choice. So good. Some more like kind of conversational stuff. Basically, like I said, Mystique is kind of a focal point. Magneto says to her, uh, you know, by the way, if I looked like you, I wouldn't change a thing. There's a scene where she's in his bed and she's in her Rebecca form. Mm-hmm. Right. So white one woman. <laughs> and he uh, he tells her change like I, this isn't who I want to see kind of thing. And when she changes back into her her blue form, he's like perfection. You don't have to hide like it's time for you to be free. The world has tried to tame you. But by contrast, she has these conversations with Hank McCoy, or Beast, who's trying to make a cure. And he tells her, you know, even if we're accepted into society, you will never be deemed beautiful because you're blue. And he was like, wow. I will never be deemed right, buddy. like acceptable in my beast form kind of thing. Hey, buddy, keep yourself loathing to your dude, fucking self, yeah. my that dude. That is such a big part of Beast. Dude, I know. It's like really bad vibes. And then he tells her when she returns to her white blonde form, you look beautiful now. We need this cure. Oh, 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 man. oh okay. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, sure, is, sure, 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 sure. This sure, is sure. this whole, because, like, like, I guess, like, Beast has this transformation over time where he becomes, like, more, like, he loses the self-loathing and he becomes accepting of his Beast form. But, like, for a lot of the time, Beast is just like, yeah, we mutants that look, like, messed up, we shouldn't be seen out in the world. We need to solve this and hide ourselves. Yeah. We, we don't look right. It's like, a, um, not, Listen, not a fan. I sympathize with self-loathing, but I, I maintain you got to keep it to yourself. yourself. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> um, This article describes this as like the opposition of Magneto is like something like Bash Back was a, a, a queer direct action network. Um, It produced a lot of propaganda, you know, that talked about like revolutionary violence. And then you have like the Beast as a representation of the the pro-passing assimilationist stance of like HRC or something like that is like what this article describes it as. You know, both are in favor of equality, but one is like about, you know, general acceptance and that requires you to conform. And the other one's about highlighting the failures of reformation and critiquing them while advocating like a liberationist discourse. I've just put my finger on the exact feeling because I felt this feeling before of not being able to remember that somebody is a bad guy. And I realized that it's Killmonger. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. That is that is the other one where I get through like two thirds of the way mo- through the movie. I'm like, oh fuck, I forgot he was the bad guy. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> Killmonger will never be ne- never gonna be a <laughs> villain in my head. Same. We'll kill. I've got a hoodie that says Killmonger was right. Killmonger will he never right. be a, a villain in right. my head. He he was in opposition to the Wakanda leadership, and yeah, he was trying to rage war on the rest of the world. I get that. That was bad. But- it's the same <laughs> fucking thing. We need to get fucking Killmonger and Mystique to team mean? up and just burn the world down. He's a little what? confused, but he's got the spirit. Yeah. He's got the spirit, yeah. I don't even think he's confused. No. I think he's just no, but I think a little bit the too meme. traumatized. Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, you got it. <laughs> Yeah, so at this point, the cure is developed, but in the movie, uh, Mystique is accidentally shot with it, and she is excommunicated from the the mutant brotherhood because as a non-mutant, she could not be part of the mutant uh, liberation movement. She's later shown cooperating with state security and providing information on Magneto's base. Obviously, an oversimplification of the, all this kind of stuff, but this like idea that like radicals also cannot accept. Right. It's just like there's like if you don't if you don't if you're not radical enough, then you're nothing. Then you're working for the state. If you're not exactly what we need you to be, then you're nothing to us, right? I mean, like it's she's not getting accepted from either anybody 
<laughs> it's all conditional. Yeah, I mean, it's really sad, right? It's just like Mystique cannot exist in either space, mm-hmm. really, truly. I hate that. But yeah, you know, in terms of uh, how the state exists with the X-Men, the state is always portrayed in this positive, legitimate light. All are loyal and friends to Xavier's X-Men. All oppose Magneto. So you have this like constant recurring tension of like pro-state versus rejectionist mutants. That is in a lot of ways parallels, you know, like different LGBTQ organizations and mentalities uh, and communities. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, as well as like other marginalized groups. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's rare that you have this like, transgressive anti-state violence associated with like the quote good guys. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder why. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to just wrap <laughs> on to this one. Like I thought it was kind of an interesting note. Uh, Richard Reynolds, the author of Superheroes and Modern Mythology, argues that attempting to see them as a metaphor, the X-Men or mutants uh, for marginalized marginalized groups doesn't work how come basically he argued that exercises um kind of take out all the subtext Mm -hmm. and it it kind of like ruins it you know what i mean uh one way to look at it i guess is that the writers are constantly changing the characters are constantly changing the mentalities of society at the time are always changing but he kind of argues that this is like an oppositional reading But for some people, like, the authors are deliberately writing these allegories, and that is really important to people reading it. Like, being able to see yourselves in these marginalized groups, either as a marginalized group uh, member or not, like, in terms of increasing empathy and understanding and also feeling, like, seen. Sure. Yeah, I mean, like, that. I I take issue with the notion, and I know you're not necessarily agreeing with this dude wholeheartedly, Mm -hmm. but, like, I take issue with the notion that you can't or shouldn't do anything. Like, once a a piece of art is out in the world, man, it's out there and people sh- people can do what they want with it. <laughs> exactly. You create a piece of work and it's out in the world. People are going to look at it and see what they want to see. But also if there's good to be had, like if someone is going to like be able to have more empathy for certain kinds of people or groups because of the comics, then like why not? Like I wouldn't say like just overly reject like that having these analogies is impossible, especially if like people can form them and it allows them to like progress. Right. But then projecting them and then like kind of bastardizing them with some of these is like, okay, yeah, I can see why you wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. Problematic though they may be, it's like if people feel seen, then that's Mm -hmm. rad. Yeah, I mean, you had in the (laughs) 80s people writing in saying that they thought that the X-Men were like a subliminal positive message about the gay community, which is like obviously a good thing. Mostly what I would hope for then is then uh, like writers to be able to write storylines because they can be informed about it either through their own experience or through like empathy and humility in terms of learning them so that we get like actual good storylines for some of this kind of stuff. Yeah. For me, it's like I don't want it just to be coding. I would also like to see more gay characters. Yeah, you watch. know what I mean? Yeah. Which there are some. I mean, yeah. Like you can actually have conversations in comic books about like the intersectionality of being a mutant and trans or like a mutant and like gay. Like it these yeah. conversations yeah. should be had and those stories would be interesting and good for all people that much more depth to um right exactly so i think personally it's Mm. less of an issue of it has to be read this way or it doesn't have to be in only one or the other so much as like i think a lot of people do read it this way and that's very good and valid and there's a lot of obvious problems and uh issues with how it's done and handled and stuff like that are executed but also it would be nice to have like more than just like a handful of lgbtq people yeah also like it's not gonna the other thing is, it's still lucrative. Fucking Deadpool, man. I cannot tell you how much my seventh graders would not talk about anything else when that came out for like the entire year. <laughs> Deadpool this and Deadpool odd. that. Wow. Seventh? 
I know it was a little I was a little a little surprised. But yeah, Deadpool, an absolute obsession going to the movies multiple times to see Deadpool. Interesting. It's a lucrative. Yeah. And he's not shying away from the pegging, man. It's, it's not a joke. Yeah, he doesn't shy away from that. Or in the second one, the constant flirtation with Colossus. Oh, yeah. Well, soft Which, like oh rock my God, ballads ideal. play in the background. Ideal. Ideal. Yeah, exactly. A plus. This is why the second one's better. The second one is very good. Yeah. Also, I mean, technically not an MCU thing, but as far as I know, the first of a Marvel franchise to like actually explicitly like show a gay couple. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Oh, and by the way, I know that pegging is a thing that straight people can do. I'm just saying he's just really putting it all out there (laughs) is my point. (laughs) Ryan Reynolds slash Deadpool's putting it all out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And that's my expert opinion. (laughs) He's putting it all out there. And um, the pegging. Great. (laughs) Thanks for listening to In My Expert Opinion. Please remember to rate and subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you'd leave a review with your expert opinion on why this podcast is rad. Five-star reviews will get a shout-out on the podcast. Pretty big deal, if you ask me. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at expertoppod, or email inmyexpertopinion at gmail.com. Later, nerds! <laughs>